Lord, we are desperate to see the beauty and glory of Jesus. You made us for this. We hunger for him. And so I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of our heart, help us to behold him in all of his glory. I pray that as we do, that you would uh, do something in our hearts that would reorient them around this ultimate reality. Uh, I pray that you would work among us, not because any of us are great, but because you are great and Jesus is great. So we pray in his name. Amen. Well, I want you to think of all the great people who've lived throughout history. Uh, most of us are going to live and die and be forgotten within a few generations, a kind of a depressing thought, but one that will set us free. But there are some that, as I mentioned their names, you would know them. You would know Isaac Newton. Everyone in this room has heard of Isaac Newton, of Da Vinci, uh, Shakespeare, Einstein, Gutenberg, Churchill. Uh, in scripture, or even if you are here today and you're not a believer, you would have heard of Moses and King David. All these people are uh, great. Uh, these people are going to live long after we're gone and forgotten. These names are going to be remembered. We could go on and on about the great figures who've lived and who've changed the course of history. The question is, who are these people, even the greatest saints, compared with Jesus Christ? And Mark Jones a pastor in Vancouver answers this question by saying, these great people are like a grain of sand compared with Mount Everest. A grain of sand. Who is Samson's strength, he asks, compared with that of Jesus, who was raised in power? What is Solomon's wisdom compared with that of the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom are contained? What is Methuselah's age compared with the age of the one who inhabits the places of eternity? What are Paul's visions of heaven compared with the sight of the Lord of heaven? What are Elisha's miracles compared with the incarnation and resurrection of the God-man? There's nobody who's ever lived like Jesus. And friends, perhaps the most important thing you and I will ever do is to get to know Jesus. The most important thing that you and I could ever do, the reason we're here today, is to gaze at Jesus. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, I want you to know you are so welcome here. Uh, we aim to be a church where you can come and ask questions about Jesus, where you can uh, take an honest look at scripture and wrestle with who is he? Is he uh, just a figure from history? Is he a great person? Is there more than that? And I want you to know that of all the questions you could ask about Christianity, the most important questions you could ask have to do with Jesus. In fact, Christianity rises and falls on who Jesus is. And so all the other questions become secondary and tertiary to that question. And so if you're here today and if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to know you are welcome here. Uh, there's no question off limits. And you can, uh, you can just go there, but I encourage you to go to Jesus. Look at him and ask hard questions about who he is and what it means for you. But if you're here today and if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to know that this is also important for us. There is nothing more important that we could do today than to look at Jesus. The Puritan writer John Owen talked about uh, the privilege of 
beholding the glory of Christ. And he says this, he says, it is one of the greatest privileges and advancements that believers are capable of in this world and of the world to come. So what this means is, uh, if we're bored today as we look at Jesus, the glory of Jesus, you're really gonna be bored in eternity. The thing that we're gonna be doing, the thing that is gonna be deeply satisfying one day, uh, I used to think heaven was a big deal because like streets of gold, um, pearly, like I don't even care about, this sounds horrible. As I remember as a kid thinking, pearly gates, I'm just not that interested, right? Seems a little bit ornate. The streets of gold, like kind of cool, but um, then I thought about like, what's it gonna be like? And I couldn't get that excited about uh, really any of it because I couldn't picture it. And then as I learned more and more, I realized, you know what's gonna be great about heaven? We get to gaze at the glory of Jesus. The thing that's gonna be great in heaven is, I mean, it's gonna be great to see the loved ones we've lost. It's gonna be great to have no more sickness or illness or uh, pain or there's gonna be no more crime. There's gonna be, but you know the real beauty of heaven is gonna be Jesus. We're gonna spend eternity looking at Jesus. It's a privilege we get to begin right now. Uh, And so this morning, this is what we need as believers. This is preparing us for eternity. It doesn't get any better than to look at Jesus. So no matter who you are, where you're at spiritually, whether you came in today feeling tired and exhausted, skeptical, uh, whatever it is, we need to look at Jesus. And today's passage is going to help us to do this. Long ago, there was a group of Christians who were struggling spiritually. They were tempted to turn away from Jesus to lesser things. And to deal with this problem, this letter called Hebrews was written, and it begins with one of the most beautiful sentences in all of scripture. And this sentence is all about one person, Jesus. I wanna be honest today, somebody said to me, are we covering the same passage uh, again today? I didn't intend to do that. And then as I prepared last week's sermon, I realized we can't rush on. There's so much to see here. And then even today, it feels like I'm about to give, uh, and I apologize in advance. You know, in seminary, they teach preaching, and they say one thing you should never do is apologize uh, when you're preaching. I'm sorry. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm preaching. Uh, today's sermon has seven points. Um, <laughs> I told Nick earlier, I've never preached a seven-part sermon in my life. I'm praying for you right now. <laughs> I said, you know, the only other time I think I've done anything like that is here earlier this year. So, uh, you know, I've only preached at GFC Don Mills a handful of times. I went back and looked this morning and realized I thought that was a lot. I thought I put you through a lot. It was actually five points. So, um, but you know, today, even though we have a lot to cover, it's a little bit like arriving at the Louvre in Paris and getting out the bus and being handed a ticket and being told, here you go, you've got 10 minutes to go through the Louvre and admire all the artwork. Honestly, today is going to be deeply disappointing in one way because we're just going to be running through this amazing list of the qualities of Jesus. And so I encourage you today, uh, don't just settle for what I'm going to say. This passage is so rich. Memorize it. Meditate on it. uh, Chew on it. Savor it. Treat this like if you have a dog, you know, you give them a bone and they take off into a corner and they're chewing on that bone for hours. They're licking it and turning it over and, and they get every ounce of nourishment from it. I want you to do that with this passage today because this is what we need most. 
No matter who you are, if you're investigating Christianity, if you've been a Christian for decades, there's nothing more important than that we see the beauty and glory of Jesus. And so who is Jesus? Uh, seven things this passage tells us about Jesus. This is high Christology, by the way. Like, uh, the reason that we're coming back to this is because in, in just one sentence, the writer just packs so much in here. Seven things we need to know about Jesus. And here's the first one. We're not going to spend a, a long time on it because we looked at it last week. Here's the first thing. One, Jesus is the pinnacle of God's revelation. The pinnacle. Like, it doesn't get any better than this. He is the climax, the best that it gets in terms of God's revelation to us. Verses 1 and 2. Long ago, and many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Uh, God has revealed himself to us. We don't have to sit here and guess what is God like. Uh, is he, uh, you know, can you imagine if we had to guess what God is like? If we had to kind of play, uh, like, what do you think? Like, what do you think God wants from us? No, I disagree with that. What do you think? It would be maddening and frustrating because we, we sense that God exists. It would be very frustrating for us to have to imagine and guess what God likes. Uh, in, our, in a relationship, one of the beautiful things that happens is somebody tells you what they like. And so you learn, well, when I do this, it bothers them. When I don't do this, uh, it pleases them. You know, when I do this, they like it. Isn't it good that God has not left us guessing what pleases God, what annoys God, what offends God? God has revealed himself to us. We don't have to guess. And one of the amazing things is God has revealed his nature to us, that God is good, that his intentions for us are for relationship, that he cares for us. But you know the problem with God's revelation before Jesus? It was amazing, it was glorious, but there's a problem. It was partial, it was fragmentary, it was preparatory, and it was incomplete. And many of us struggle as we read the Hebrew scriptures. We love it. I love the Hebrew scriptures. But it leaves us with this sense of, ah, I want more. And then Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes in Christ, God spoke fully, decisively, finally, and perfectly. We don't live in a big place. Uh, we're in a condo in Liberty Village. And, but even though we're not in a big place, you know, sometimes we catch ourselves talking to each other when we're not in the same room. Does that ever happen to you? And uh, you spend your time going, what? What did you say? And once in a while, so Shire will tell me, like, you got to stop doing that. Like, if you want to talk to me, like, actually come to the room and look at me and um, so I can see your face and actually speak to me. I kind of think of that in terms of what Jesus did. When Jesus came, he came in the same room we saw him. He looked us in the face. We have the wit eyewitness testimony of people who actually saw and heard him. He spoke, he entered the room and he said, let me speak to you directly so that you hear me. There's no misunderstanding. I'm speaking to you. In Jesus, we have the pinnacle of God's revelation. It doesn't get any better than that. Friends, that's, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He has spoken loudly and fully and completely so that we know exactly what he's like. Secondly, who is Jesus? The pinnacle of God's revelation. Secondly, Jesus is God's son. Okay, this is so basic. Uh, it says, uh, in these last days, he has spoken to us 
by his son. So basic, uh, God's son. Deep waters here. Who is Jesus? I mentioned if you're here today, if you're investigating uh, what Christianity is, you need to understand that scripture is clear from beginning to end. It's not just uh, people who made this up. Scripture is clear. The New Testament makes it clear that Jesus is more than a great teacher. He's more than a great leader. He's more than a great man. He's, he's more than that. He is God's son. He is God himself. Jesus is no ordinary man. This sets him apart from everybody else who's ever lived. The writer is about to unpack this. What he's about to say is going to blow our minds. If you have any questions about what it means that he's God's son, he's going to unpack it because some of what follows could only be true of God. And what this means is Jesus is like any, unlike any other person who's ever lived because he's God. You know, the doctrine of the Trinity is all over scripture. The word Trinity never appears once. And yet all through scripture, including in this passage, you see this remarkable uh, doctrine that God is one. There's only one God. And yet God eternally exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, but the Father is not the Son. The Holy Spirit is not the Father or the Son. But together they are the triune God who is at the same time perfectly one and yet distinct in three persons. When you look at Jesus, you are not just looking at another person. You are actually looking at God who became one of us. God in the flesh. Now as I say these words, I have to admit there's not a theologian in the world who fully understands this. I think in eternity, I used to think when we die and we're resurrected instantly that we would understand everything. I actually think eternity is going to be looking at truths like this and saying, I still marvel at this. I still don't understand it. It's true, but it's amazing. I still can't comprehend it. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, if I were to try to explain the Trinity, I would soon be entirely out of my depth and I should likely drown all that I could tell you in my flood of words. And he says this, I love this, deity is not to be explained, but to be adored. And the sonship of Christ is to be accepted as a truth of revelation, to be comprehended by faith, though it cannot be comprehended by understanding. It, shouldn't, it should make sense to us, shouldn't it, that there's things about God we can't understand? If God is God, of course, it's going to be difficult to understand who he is. The, I can't understand so much, of course I can't understand God. But we can look at Jesus, and we can, as we look at him, we can recognize that he's far more than any other person who's ever lived. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, co-equal with the Father. He stands in the nearest possible relationship to the Father, a relationship of intense love and delight, so that the Father looks at him and says, you are my beloved son. He is one with the Father so that there's no separating him. He is God's final revelation. He is God himself. But thirdly, he's also uh, God's heir. He's also God's heir. Verse two says, uh, whom he appointed the heir of all things. When we were married, I don't think it was in our vows, but I kind of joked. Um, I was married as a student and um, I remember standing in front of the church and giving vows and uh, one of the old vows is, um, all my worldly goods 
I the endow, basically like everything that I have is yours. Well, at the time Shar was working, I was still a student. And uh, I was like, you know, like I got a shelf of books over here. I got 50 bucks in the bank. Like I got a waterbed. It's all yours. You know, it's all yours. Recently, um, it's coming on here, you know, signing up for the RSP. And on there, you have to name a beneficiary. Uh, and so I came home, like, good news, Shar. Like, I wrote you down as a beneficiary. If I die, you get it all, right? <laughs> and what this verse says is, unfortunately, Shar is the heir of not very much. Um, but what is Jesus the heir of? All things. What this means is, one day, I don't know what I'll inherit from my parents, if anything. Like, honestly, we tell our parents, you spend it all, like you're still alive, so just don't stop living. Keep, like, if you need to, die broke. Like, bounce a last check, that's good. I don't know what inheritance we'll get. I don't know what inheritance my kids will get. I know the inheritance Jesus will get, all things. This whole world, everything, everything in the universe is gonna be his. Psalm 2.8 says this, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Well, guess what? In Jesus, that's true. He gets the nations. The ends of the earth are his possession. You know, when he came to earth, he became poor. He gave up everything. Though he was rich for our sake, he became poor, that through his poverty, we could become rich. Jesus, as he lived in this world, had nothing. At one time, he said, I, I don't even have like my own place to sleep in. I, I'm like a level down from the animals, like they have a place to sleep, I don't. When he died, he was buried in a grave that wasn't even his own. And now the father has exalted him and made him the heir of everything. This gives us hope as we look forward to the second coming of Jesus. Everything will become his. As we talk about the problems of the world today, our hearts are aching at the brokenness of the world around us. One day, all of that will be resolved. One day, all of creation will be bowed and subjected to Jesus. All creation is moving to that moment. God has promised everything to Jesus. All of it will be his. It's only a matter of time. And the amazing thing is, Romans 8, 17 says that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus. That scripture teaches that your relationship, if you followed Christ, is that you are in Jesus. That means that you are so closely tied to Jesus that everything that's true of him is true of you. If you're in Jesus, you stand to inherit everything with him. It's, it's like you are so closely tied to Jesus that one day as Jesus receives everything, Jesus says, here, it's yours too. I'll share with you. God's people get to share in everything that belongs to Jesus. This is amazing, isn't it? Is it not? Jesus is the pinnacle of the revelation of God. Jesus is God's son. Everything is coming to him. Number four, Jesus is creator. Uh, Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Verse 2 of Hebrews 1 says, through whom he also created the world. How did God create the world? Through Jesus. John 1 verse 3 says, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.16 says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All of this is Jesus' handiwork. The, I love, okay, I, I love summer. This time of year, I have to admit, I'm like, I, I miss the sun. I miss the warmth. But then I go driving and I see the beauty of the trees. I see, I look out the window there and see how amazing is God? Like, isn't that, you see the, the beauty of the, the change in the colors. Uh, and I'm looking at this saying, like, this is amazing. The trees are all going to lose their leaves. It's going to look, and then next spring, it's going to be like, they're going to come alive again and pop with life. You see the beauty of creation. You see, you look up at the sky and you see the stars. You see the, it's all his handiwork. Jesus made it all. I get confused. I can't comprehend the size of the universe. Two, they say nobody's counted. They estimate two trillion galaxies. Does anybody here know what a trillion is? I know you know what it is. Can anybody actually understand what trillion is? Like, and each, each galaxy has, can have, it ranges, but billions of stars. I mean, I can barely comprehend our solar system. If you take two trillion galaxies and multiply them by billions of stars, if you were to travel at the speed of light across the universe, it would take, they estimate, 93 billion years to go from one end to the other. Jesus made it all. Jesus, it's all his handiwork. All of it is a result of his creative activity. And not only that, Number five, Jesus is God's personified glory. It says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Um, this is easy to communicate, hard to understand. Spurgeon, I think, put it best. Whatever God is, Christ is. Jesus is the perfect, visible expression of God. The transfiguration, by the way, where one day they were alone and Jesus revealed himself to some of his closest uh, disciples, and they were amazed. What that was was Jesus saying, just for a minute, I've veiled my glory. Just for a minute, I'm going to let you see me as I really am. And they were just blown away. Like, they were super, they just didn't know what to do with the glory of Jesus. And what he's saying here is, look, when you look upon Jesus, you see exactly what God is like. You see God in all his glory in human form. Jesus made himself human, fully God, fully human. And in Jesus, you see the glory of God. You see the love of God, the mercy of God, the justice of God, the holiness of God, the goodness of God. Amazing to think that Jesus walked among us. Amazing to think that people, he interacted with sinners, that he talked to them. As, as he spoke to them, it was God himself speaking to them. Even more amazing to realize he's with us here today. Even more amazing to say we're not talking about a figure in history. We're actually talking about the one who said, I am with you always. Jesus is present with his people. He's here today. He is the glory of God. He reveals to us what God is like. Number six. See, I, we can do seven points, right? Number six. He's sustainer. Verse three says, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Again, Colossians 1.17 says, in him all things hold together. 
I always used to picture a God, you know, like a big grandfather clock uh, where somebody comes and they take that big key and they turn it and they, the, all of a sudden the pendulum swings and it's like, it's going. And then the day later, the same guy comes along and winds it again and it's going another day. I always kind of picture a God like, okay, uh, earth, orbit around the sun, okay? I'll come back later and check on you. But what Hebrew says is, all of it just takes place by the word of his power. All of it's happening because God is actually making it happen right now. Jesus is behind everything that's happened. He keeps the planets in orbit by his authoritative and effective word of power. If he did not, if he ceased speaking all things into existence, it would all go back to nothingness from whence it sprang. The reason we're here today, the reason that we woke up today is because Jesus is speaking and the universe is being sustained by the word of his power. Somebody mentioned last week this great quote by Chesterton. We think that every day the sun comes up. We think it's just because, well, of course, like we can predict all of that. But as Chesterton put it, it's possible that everything, every morning, God says, do it again. And every evening to the moon, he says, do it again. It might not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. Friends, what that means for you, you are, you are being sustained right now by God. Uh, everything. You are here because God has spoken your existence into being. Jesus is, everything is about Jesus. He's holding it all together. That's who Jesus is. The pinnacle of God's revelation, God's son, God's heir, the creator, God's personified glory and the sustainer of the universe. But there's one more thing, and I love this. I'm kind of thinking like, where's the author going? I mean, can it get any better than this? Like this, could you beat anything that's been said? And you're kind of like, no, like he's maxed out here, right? I don't know where he goes from here, how it could be better than this. It gets better, verses three and four. Who is this God? Who is Jesus, this glorious God himself, who is so far beyond our thinking? Well, verses three to four, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Okay, so... How could it possibly get better than what he said? Here is how it gets better. This Jesus, who is all the things we've talked about, has made purification for your sins. This Jesus, this exalted and glorious, the creator, the sustainer of all things, the one who's the exact imprint of God's nature, all of those things, the creator of this world, has made purification for your sins and my sins. The amazing news that this God willingly went to the cross and died in the place of sinners. He gave his life as a once-for-all sacrifice to deal for our sins. This God, there's nobody higher than Jesus. And Jesus took the lowest place for our sakes out of love and grace. We didn't deserve any of it. Jesus has purified us. He's taken all the guilt away, 
You stand today. Is there anybody here who's not an active sinner like present tense? Uh, George Whitfield once said that uh, it's not like we sin sometimes. Uh, one time he was preaching and he says, I can't even preach without sinning. I can't even pray, but that I need to repent of my prayers. Like my, I'm such a bundle of mixed motives that even the purest thing I do has a little bit of self-interest in it. Uh, even the best thing I do is still about me to a certain extent. You are a present tense sinner, so am I. And Jesus has made purification for all those who trust in him. As you stand as a present day sinner before God, not only has Jesus made purification for his sins, but he sat down because he's done. It is finished. No more purification needs to be made. He's dealt finally and fully with your guilt and my guilt. If you are in Jesus Christ, you stand innocent before God, cleansed and righteous. There is therefore no condemnation for you because you are in Christ Jesus. He looks at you and sees the righteousness of his son. You are cleansed and purified. You stand holy before him. What an amazing God. Jesus, who's so exalted and glorious, has done all this to save you and me. And I love the, the image here. We're going to return to it later in Hebrews. Uh, last night, I had a busy day. You know, I, my family had a Thanksgiving gathering. I couldn't go because I just had something I have to get ready for next week. Um, I kind of got distracted a little bit. I decided, well, today's a nice day. I'm going to clean the windows and like stuff I shouldn't do. So last night, 1130, it's like, I've, like I, th- I just need to go to bed. Like, I think I'm... And so I go to bed, and then at night, my mind's buzzing. I'm like, I forgot to do this. I got to get that ready. My work, I don't think I've ever gone to bed and felt my work has been done. You know what Hebrews says? After Jesus made purification for your sins, he sat down because his work was done. Nothing more needed to be done. Jesus right now is sitting saying, I have... There's no more work that I need to do to save my people. It's been fully and perfectly completed. And that's why Jesus has put him in the place of highest honor in this universe. A place that is above every other place. He's seated at right hands God, uh, the ha- right hand of God. He is in the place of exaltation in this universe. And that's why what Mark Jones said is so true. You think of all the people who've ever lived Friends, none of them compare to Jesus. Only Jesus is the pinnacle of God's revelation. Only Jesus is God's son. Only Jesus is God's heir, creator, the personified glory of God himself, the sustainer of the universe. Only Jesus today has made purification for our sins and it sits today in an exalted place in this universe. Okay, seven points. (laughs) Are you still there? Okay. Anyone, like, elbow your neighbor if they're asleep at this point. Uh, we want to make sure we're coming in for a landing here. I'm not used to preaching seven-point passages. It feels like we've just, like, run by the Mona Lisa. Like, hey, nice, take a selfie, run. Like, there's so much here. Like, honestly, every one of these seven points, we could just stop and marvel and gaze. Let me just summarize everything that we've said today. Because Jesus is incomparable, there's nobody like him. Looking at him, really looking at him, can change your life forever. Because he's incomparable, what is the point of all of this? Remember, 
Hebrews is trying to say to this group of wonder Christians, look at Jesus. Like, what's the cure for your temptation to bolt? Look at Jesus. Friends, Jesus is enough. We're also hungry for glory. Uh, I don't know if anybody watched the rugby game yesterday. South Africa, way to go, you know. Why is it so exciting to see a team victorious? Uh, why, I, I, why is it so? Because we're hungry for glory. We were all made for this. Friends, Jesus is the answer to that hunger. There's nobody that we need to look at more than him. And I want to tell you, he's enough. He's got everything that we need. As we are looking in this world for, like, I just need something, we're all restless. We all want something that's going to uh, give us what we're looking for. Well, that's because we were made for Jesus. Only Jesus is glorious enough to fill that hole. We look for it in career and possessions and romance. We look at it, achievement, acclaim from people. Let me tell you, it doesn't matter what you get. Nothing will fill that hole in your life because you were made for the glory of Jesus. How do we change? I used to actually preach a lot and talk about, you know, you need to do this. Uh, and there's a place for that. Like, obviously, Scripture calls for obedience. But you know what I've increasingly realized? You know the biggest thing that we need as we gather together? There's a place for application points. Uh, and make no mistake, there's going to be application points. Like, next week, there's going to be a big application. But you know the biggest application that we need? Look at Jesus. The best thing that we can do, the, the most important application point in all of Scripture is look at Jesus. Because when we get a fuzzy picture of Jesus, we begin to drift. When we get a clear picture of Jesus and his glory, it changes us. One of the reasons I love this church is um, it talks about beholding. The first point, right, and it was mentioned this morning already. Uh, beholding is kind of a weird word. Like, does anybody ever talk about beholding uh, other than a, 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 in a church context? It's kind of weird. Behold means actually that you don't just look at something, but you actually take it in, that you stare at it. Jared Wilson, I remember reading one of his books, The Imperfect Disciple, and he makes a point in that book that what's more important than behaving is actually beholding. He says, you know what? You want your life to be changed? Behold. Look at Jesus. He says the direct route to God-honoring behavior is not born out of good behavior, but of good beholding. He says our ability to actively and persistently follow Jesus will be driven by our ability to behold his glory. Beholding Christ's glory is the number one directive for following Jesus. And sometimes it's the only thing that we lousy and tired disciples can muster up. If you're here today, if you're feeling tired and discouraged, if you're feeling like, I just don't have what it takes to live the Christian life, I just feel like a failure, a fraud, look at Jesus. If you're here today, as I said, looking at Christianity, is this true? I would just say, look at Jesus. It will change you. Look at him in his glory. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you a full view of his glory. I love Jared Wilson's uh, story that he tells to bring it home because what does this look like? He tells the story of Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher that I've quoted today. And in January 1850, Spurgeon woke up and just felt like, I'm hungry for something. And so he said, I, I'm going to find a church. It was snowing that day. And so he just landed in a church he didn't even plan to go to. 
and he ducked him at a church. It was a lay preacher that day, not a very good preacher, actually. Uh, Spurgeon actually called him feeble and stupid. Um, <laughs> and the passage that was being preached was this, look unto me and be he saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there's nobody else. Look to me and be saved. And the preacher actually knew that Spurgeon was a visitor, so he kind of like, young man, he started preaching to him. And, and here's what he said. It changed Spurgeon's life. He said, looking, don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your finger, uh, your foot or your finger. It's just look. A man needn't go to college to look. You may be the biggest fool and you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. And that morning, Spurgeon looked to Jesus, and it changed his life and the course of Christian history. That's exactly what Hebrews wants us to do. Look, you don't need to understand complicated theology. You don't need to go to seminary. Anyone can look, and it will change your life. Look at Jesus. Look at him long enough in his glory, and it will change you forever. And so, Father, help us to see Jesus. There's nobody like him. Thank you for who he is. Thank you for all that he's done. Thank you that he acted in love to save sinners by making purification for sins. These, he's incomparable. There's nobody like him. And so I pray for anyone here who's investigating Christianity. I pray that you would give them a clear view of Jesus the one who lies at the center of not only Christianity, but history. Help them to look to Jesus and live. I pray for those who might be wandering, Lord. Uh, there might be people here who are just like the recipients of Hebrews who are tempted to, to drift away. Lord, I pray that their eyes would look to Jesus, that they would be captured again by his beauty and glory and be enamored with him. And for those of us, Lord, who are walking with you imperfectly, we're stumbling, help us to behold him. And since Beholding the glory of Christ is one of the greatest privileges and advancements that we'll ever be capable of. Help us to join the angels and saints this morning and behold him. And may this beholding change us at our core, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Daryl. Okay, so as, as Jason mentioned, we're going uh, to try something new this morning. And actually, you ruined my first question <laughs> because I was going to ask what a Q&R was uh, as opposed to a Q&A. For those of you that snuck in after the intro, if you didn't hear it, the Q&R uh, is a question and response time. Um, Daryl, in his humility, says he won't have the answers for us necessarily, but we'll have a response. So we look forward to those responses. Uh, and I'm going to start, uh, Jason, with just a, a light, spicy question, uh, if that's okay. Um, I'm going to actually quickly just recap, uh, well, not recap, but John Piper has a book called Future Grace. He has an abridged version of that called Battling Unbelief. And one of the things that was really revolutionary for me as I uh, read through that book uh, many years ago was just I used to think, and I think there's something to this, that kind of an underlying sin kind of for all the sins we commit is kind of pride, right? Is, is, is elevating our own um, kind of thoughts for self and our own self-importance. And that kind of underlies all he does. John Piper makes the argument that actually uh, the root cause of almost every sin is unbelief, right? Failure to believe in the greatness of Christ, failure to believe in what God has done for us. Um, so as we think through the seven points uh, that you went through this morning, as we've talked about Jesus being the son of God, the heir of God, the, uh, the bodily representation of the glory of God, um, seated at the right hand of God, 
why is it hard for us? Why can it be so hard for us to believe that and actually uh, live like that's true? You know, I think as humans, we have this ability to get used to the most amazing things. Um, so like anything that's amazing, after a day or two, I'm sort of like, eh, like, uh, what, you know, we've checked into a five-star hotel. We've had like, we, one time we stayed at Sandals and we had a butler. And it's like, <laughs> after a couple of days, it's like, eh, like, whatever. Like, and I think it's the same with Jesus. Uh, we just get so used to this thing that we should never get used to. Mm. I think human nature and our dullness is uh, we just lose the beauty of it. So, yeah, I think it's part of our fallenness. Um, hedonic adaptation that we lose the wonder of what God has given us. Amen. There's some hard questions in here. Well, I'm, I'm looking at them, Dan. Yeah. We're going medium spicy <laughs> yeah. next year, okay? Okay. So, um, just as you were talking, one of the, kind of another thing that came to mind is, I, I don't know who said this. I don't want to rip anything off. I think it was Carson that I heard give this. I don't know if it's his story or not, but he was talking about how um, a lot of people like who claim that there's kind of, there's a God out there. We all kind of worship the same God and whatnot, right? And the, the kind of the way to understand that is like if you picture an elephant in a room, mm-hmm. right? And they put some men, some blindfolded men in there and they go touch the elephant, right? One guy's going to touch the leg and say, oh, God's like a tree trunk. Another guy's going to touch the stomach and say, oh, God's like a blimp or whatever. Another guy's going to touch the, uh, the, the trunk and be like, oh, God's like a hose, right? And, and Carson says, well, this is kind of a dumb analogy because it all falls apart if the elephant speaks mm. <laughs> and yeah. says, I am an elephant, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's why it's so important when you talked earlier about um, that God has spoken yeah. through the prophets and now he, like, he's spoken through Jesus, ultimately yeah. through his son. So as we think about that, one of the questions that came in was, and I mean, I know we've had some viewing parties and I, there's a lot of hot topics around some of this. I don't want to necessarily go down that rabbit hole, but is God still speaking today? Well, you know, the, one of the things we believe is that God has spoken decisively and uh, climatically through his son, through scripture. And so there's a sense in which the scriptures are unlike any other revelation, that they are unique. Uh, does God speak today? Well, general revelation, absolutely, God continues to speak today through creation. Uh, and then the whole subject is God continue to speak today through things like prophecy. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll put it this one, uh, at our previous church, uh, I'm a continuationist, uh, probably a soft continuationist, and uh, we had a cessationist who was my apprentice, and I gave him 1 Corinthians 14 to preach, and he did an amazing job. So the thing that I loved is uh, we disagreed on the answer to that question, but we both agreed that there's Scripture is authoritative. There's nothing above Scripture, mm-hmm. and we can rest in the revelation that God has given us there and trust that there's nothing more we need uh, if God... If you're a continuationist and God continues to speak, it's not above scripture, it's below scripture. If you're a cessationist and you believe God, we can agree. God has spoken through his son climatically as recorded in scripture, and we put our faith in that. Amen. And, and that's actually probably a great segue to, to the next question I was going to ask. Is if we're saying that um, the scriptures are kind of the, the ultimate way God, uh, the final way God kind of has spoken to us, Lots of other religions, religions would claim that, uh, that their sacred books are divine revelation as well. So why should Christianity's claim be trusted above all other world religions that this is the authoritative and only authoritative word of God? You know, what? Uh, scripture is, attests to itself. And one of the amazing things is uh, as you read scripture, uh, and it's scripture itself that actually says this. You're not just encountering words, you're encountering God himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, because the word, every other book that's been written is dead, right? And scripture is living and powerful. Uh, it, 
So I would say, like, actually read scripture. I'm thinking of Rosaria Butterfield, who began to read scripture as a skeptic to attack Christianity. And in the middle of it, she said, actually, scripture became bigger than I was. And I realized, instead of critiquing it, it started critiquing me. I entered into its world rather than inviting, uh, thinking that I was going to have it into my world. I entered into its world. So I think there's a unique quality to scripture that actually, if you engage with it, it, it attests to itself. Yeah, that's powerful. Um, okay, maybe we'll do one more here. And there was a good question that I just thought would be really helpful because it was very practical. And, oh yeah, practical was in the question. How can I practically behold the glory of Jesus from day to day? Is it only by reading the Bible? How can I engage with that? One of the key w uh, ways to do that is actually what we're doing here today. Uh, what we need to do is to gather together. I don't know how many times you've come into church and just felt like so dead. And then we come and we begin to sing and our hearts come alive. So one of the things, we need to do it in community. And I think through uh, alone, uh, during the week, we need little glimpses of that glory as well. So that's why small groups are important. That's why being in the word is important. But I think one of the key ways is actually to do it in community and just say, like, would you help me see Jesus together? That's why we're gathered here today. Yeah. Yeah, amen. Uh, and maybe that's a good segue. I think we're going to yeah. transition to, to final songs now. And I just, uh, for those of you, I think a lot of you would have probably met Paul McDonald this summer if, um, if you didn't already know him. For those of us that have known him a long time, one of the things he would always encourage us to do is when we sang, we're singing vertically, like to God, of course, but we're singing horizontally to each other. So, um, so let's take advantage of that now, being in community, singing the truths that we're about to sing to each other um, and help us help each other to behold uh, Christ now. Amen.